0: Hello, and welcome to the Dream Builder Repeat podcast. I'm your host, Casey Sharperson, author of the book, Dream Builder Repeat: Harness Fear to Confidently Pursue Your Biggest Dreams. It's available on Amazon or on my website. I'm also a brand strategist and international speaker, and I am super excited to bring you stories, inspiration, strategy, all the things that you need in order to confidently pursue your biggest dreams excited for what is to come in today's episode. All right. Welcome back to the Dream Build Repeat podcast. I'm excited because I have another amazing guest. I can't wait for you all to meet her. My guest today is an expert in a million things, but we're really going to get into uh, philanthropy, social justice, relationships, all the things. So my guest today is Kia Williams. I'll read you a little bit about her and then we'll get into the conversation. Kia Williams is a native of the Washington, D.C. area. Kia became actively engaged in community-based performing arts and youth programs where her love for entertainment and her passion for social justice began at a very young age. Her work as a social change agent has continued as a prominent theme throughout her career. As a president of Relevant Solutions Group, Kia helps influencers and organizations responsibly manage and market their organization while integrating philanthropy particularly through the lens of racial equity into the fabric of their brand and culture. From managing multi-million dollar budgets and large teams to launching initiatives for major foundations, Kia is a trusted consultant to thought leaders known for developing ways to expand their current brand and use their platform and resources for good. So welcome, Kia. Thank Thank you you so much for joining
1: us. My pleasure. Glad to be here with you.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited. I met you... uh, several years ago through yeah. um, a mastermind organization. And uh, we've been connected on social media and mm-hmm. I've been seeing your posts recently. And I said, okay, like now is the time to have Kia on. <laughs> she has such incredible wisdom. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank
1: you. I'm glad you asked. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yes. Okay. So tell us, you have an incredibly impressive bio where you talk about racial equity. You talk about philanthropy. Tell me how you got into that work and what that looks like for you on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, it was really a zigzag of the path to get there. And also let me give my little disclaimer that I am, I'm eight and a half months pregnant. So I get out of breath easily. So if I sound like I'm breathing in everyone's ear, I am, he is like digging into my rib cage. So I will try to breathe and speak normally, but totally worth it. It is, it it. is, (laughs) (laughs) yes. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was honestly a zigzag of my career um, I, gosh, so my bachelor's degrees in communications and my first job at an undergrad was working for the agency that launched NASCAR's Drive for Diversity Initiative. And when I was hired, I was the only woman and the only person of color on the agency side, managing a diversity program. And I was like, "Um, okay, (laughs) you know, so you're the low man on the totem pole already because it's your, you know, you're the new kid out of college. And so there were just so many things that I had to navigate from, you know, areas where they were genuinely trying to areas where I felt like, you know, the token Black woman there. Um, But I learned so much um, and was really excited about a lot of the work. That was, I think, my first taste of seeing high net worth Black individuals that were artists and entertainers. Um, And, you know, by day, we take groups of kids to the racetrack from, you know, low socioeconomic areas. And then by night we'd be, you know, entertaining all of these celebrities. And I just, the divide realizing that many of them were from these communities and, you know, entertainment or sports was their way out. And I wanted, you know, the kids that were taking to the track to know that's not your only way out, you know, and I wanted people who had made it out through arts or entertainment or sports to feel like they knew how to give back. And they didn't have to make the choice of either feeling this almost like survivor's remorse of paying for the whole hood, you know, and employing everyone and paying everyone's rent or the total opposite of totally disconnecting from their roots because it was just too much pressure to keep up with. Um, and so there were just some unique challenges in particularly the spaces of black celebrities I saw. Um, but I didn't know what to do with it yet. I just knew that there was something there for me that I was supposed to explore. Um, so left NAScar and worked in higher ed, got my masters in counseling and uh from higher ed ended up going into nonprofit management where I really found my love cuz the, the other part was fun and exciting I was on the road it was sexy it was cool um but I didn't have the same level of intrinsic value that my work mattered beyond you know someone's data points or benchmarks for their bottom line um and then I got into nonprofit work and I was like, okay, being on the front lines is not for me. Cause I was going home crying. I wanted to adopt everybody's babies. Like it just was. It was just a lot, but it really shaped me. I'm so glad I had that experience because as I climbed the ladder and went into nonprofit management, I knew what it felt like to be the one actually providing the service and being the boots on the ground. Um, so I think it really informed my leadership style a lot and being able to advocate for the ones that are doing a lot of the work, but also managing, you know, the funders and the public fairs and you know all of that. So yeah, I was in that world for a really long time. Um, and then kind of realized like, okay, I'm back to being the only black woman in the room. <laughs> you know, it was very much so um, older white men who were wealthy and you know their money was going toward amazing causes, but there were not enough of us around the table helping to inform what that generosity and that charity looked like. Um, so you know, decisions that came down were not always culturally relevant um, and just were from a very old white male perspective. Um, so finally I was like, you know what, I I've always kind of had a side hustle. I've kept a lot of the branding work and the stuff going that I really loved. Um, and I just took the leap of faith and was like, I'm going to make my own path. And so that's really when I was able to help incorporate people who have an established brand who want to figure out how to use it. For good and be creative there. Um, And then for me, the racial equity piece was always important because I think we have to consider that when we show up, when we go to, you know, areas that have been impacted by poverty or violence, whatever, there's always a historic reason. Like our country didn't just land here. um, And, you know, Black people are not automatically inferior or criminal or sicker or less educated, or they, there are systems in place for it. And so really helping to educate the back end of the story so that we show up into communities respectfully, um, and listen to the, the experts that are living there and doing the work, um, but also use this broader platform for good. So kind of a little bit about my journey.
0: That's a really interesting story. One, I have never met anybody who worked for NASCAR or with NASCAR. <laughs> so um,
1: kudos to you. <laughs> it's actually really, you have to go to a race, but you, get, you can't go sit in the stands. You got to get like a pit pass. Like when the cars go by, you feel the, you know, and they like hop over the wall and change all four tires in 10 seconds. It's, it's exhilarating. I will say that part is pretty cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have Just that world. I'm so ignorant of the world. But Bubba Wallace, you know, he just made everybody on the the internet like, you know what? I think I could go to a NASCAR race. I had never considered it before. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That was such a a cool full circle moment for me because I remember going to the track feeling intimidated by all of the confederate flags i mean they weren't just the flags on people's trailers when I mean, people would have no shirt on they painted their bodies with the flags and i'm taking a group of 50 black kids from the hood and we're walking past you know it's just it was a very uncomfortable environment um and and it wasn't always that people were necessarily mean it just was not welcoming so that was always the the sort of undercurrent there in the the uphill battle we were fighting in the diversity efforts like well, okay we can get the people here and then they get here and that's what they see like who's gonna pay and want to come back so just seeing him and knowing that so many other drivers fought before him without ever getting the the recognition has been so such a cool moment to see although I'm not you know affiliated with any of it now just knowing that I kind of helped start that bridge was it was really cool to see
0: yeah that's real I'm not 100 percent sure on your background, but I grew up in the South. Well, mm-hmm. I lived in the Midwest first and then moved to the South. And I mean, I, I get it, like growing up with people that were confederate flags to school every day. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I mean, this is you're surrounded by this. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, as a as a Black person and knowing some of the people, you're like, I don't feel I, I don't feel like you don't like me. But clearly mm-hmm. we we have different perspectives of, mm-hmm. of what this means. But this mm-hmm. is the importance of having a seat at the table and having a voice Absolutely. at the table to say like, Hey, you, this is your perception of the flag. This is my perception of the flag, <laughs> you know? And then, and then when we're talking about our diversity efforts, when we're mm-hmm. talking about our philanthropy efforts, you know, if you don't have a voice at the table to say, these are the things that matter to these communities, mm-hmm. then otherwise you end up with all of these people who are underserved who have, you know, an opportunity to be served if their voice was, was able to be heard.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you,
0: um, now we're in this season where, you know, race is at the forefront Mm -hmm. as a consultant, what, what trends have you been seeing, um, as far as philanthropy, racial, racial justice, racial equity, you know, what has that work been like for you maybe this year or in Mm -hmm. the, in the recent years, at least? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think right now in the thick of things is a very unique opportunity for me because people who were not willing to have the conversation before are realizing like I better at least be open to this a little bit more or reevaluate what I thought I was doing well. Um, But what I find, I really have found a niche with, um, I guess what I call like new money. So these are people who were serial entrepreneurs or sold a successful business or, came into their wealth. They're not necessarily second, third, fourth generation wealthy. And so they grew up, you know, lower middle class um, and then struck it rich. So the dynamic socially looks a little different because they're, they can afford to do a whole lot more than their friends and family who they grew up with, but they're, they're not the ultra wealthy where, you know, they're in this high society that, you know, has known and been a part of each other's lives and communities for centuries, in, in the case of some families. And so they're really trying to figure out, I know what it feels like to need something. So I, I find there's a lot more listening about what the needs are and how to approach it in a responsible way. Um, and then there's a lot of um, innovation, I think, because a lot of my clients are in their, I would say from like late thirties to early fifties. So there's um, an openness to innovation because they've been risk taker risk takers in their business, which is what's made them successful. So they're open to like social impact investing um, and just a different approach to philanthropy so like to a lot of even white clients it matters so traditionally we'll see people give to black and brown organizations and what that's looked like in the past means they serve a black and brown community but now we're starting to have the conversation what's the leadership what's the executive suite look like if they're all white led organizations that are serving black and brown you know are you attaching your money to expectations around diversity of board diversity of leadership um, you know, I was talking to a, a very wealthy gentleman in Chicago earlier this week, and um, he was saying, you know, from a risk perspective, when you give to an organization that has a, I don't know, three four million dollar budget, they've you know been really steady and stable, and all this, there, it's a much lesser risk to give because you know you're going to get data outcomes, you're going to have benchmarks and measurable things, you're going to get a return potentially on your investment. Um, Burst is an organization that's really doing amazing community work also, but doesn't have that established budget or some of the capacity. And so what we talked about from an equity standpoint is if you're only funding these organizations with leadership from, you know, a, a young white woman that's an Ivy League graduate, her social network we're we're talking now not just about money but social capital so the people she can pick up in her phone and call and the resources she has as a white ivy league graduate is going to look different from a person even a black person that maybe has a masters degree from an hbcu you know we don't have necessarily all the rich friends and family again because it goes back to the system that we've been raised so yeah we are outliers who've made it we're educated we're doing well for ourselves and all that but our broader network still looks like Big Mama and Cousin Pookie and other people, it's not all, you know, and I'm not, that's not to say that every white person is able to pick up the phone and call a bunch of millionaires either, but there's just a difference in the social capital and network. And so when you see those organizations ahead, you have to ask why. And if no one takes the leap to fund, yes, you need to be fiscally responsible and have transparency and have solid business practices. But there's a lot more openness to capacity building for Black-led organizations that I've not seen in the past. Um, And then sometimes it's just different things like helping to write a um, anti-racist statement to go on their website. So, you know, before where they've not had, you know, anything intentionally making a statement to say that we support Black and Brown Lives, and this is our work. But it's more than just writing a check. You know, we we don't stand for intolerance. It's race. You know, just being braver. I think it's it's almost becoming cool in certain circles <laughs> to be outspoken about this. So I'm really trying to help leverage people and strike while the iron is hot to, um, you know, make that stand and to to ask themselves the hard questions about their internal and external and philanthropic practices.
0: Yeah, that's interesting talking about the the dichotomy between new money and old money mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and who has access to it. And the, the conversation around social circles is an interesting one um, because I chose to go to an HBCU. That was mm-hmm. my goal. That's what mm-hmm. I wanted just based on my experiences up to college. I just said, I really need this experience where I'm finally not the only one and feel like I'm constantly fighting that battle. Mm -hmm. But it's very true as far as um, network goes. Like I'm thinking about, I have an excellent social network, Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like it takes an intentional effort to really kind of get into a space um, mm-hmm. where I where I have the ability to just pick up the phone and be like, all right, I need to raise millions and millions of dollars mm-hmm. um, because it's it's just different. There's different um, expectations. And then mm-hmm. you kind of alluded to this earlier, even about I've heard it called black tax. Um, I'm sure mm-hmm. that it's it's relevant to other communities as well. But, you know, our community is sometimes, you know, when you make it, you're, you're sharing it. So, so that trajectory to get to the point where, where you have discretionary income, millions of dollars, um, it's just different. It's a, it's a different process.
1: I think that there's data and there's a lot of cool studies that are emerging now, but there's a lot of data that in the past has basically said that black people are not as philanthropic and it it tracked giving, but we did see the highest levels of giving connected to church. So again, that's very cultural. Like we're going to give tithes and offerings. We're going to volunteer at our church. We're going to help with the building fund, you know, all of that. But the other thing that these studies uh, historically did not consider is that again, if my grandmother was a maid cleaning your grandmother's house, your grandmother probably had a 401k or, you know, whatever retirement fund my grandmother didn't. And so then my parents probably paid their own way through college if they went, or if not, I'm a first gen college student. So when I make it, my philanthropy may look like paying for my little cousin to go to college because their mom didn't have a college fund set up for them or taking care of my elderly parents and, and paying for a caregiver you know out of pocket so it's things that you can't quantify through tax deductions necessarily but black people are incredibly generous. I mean, you can go into any community and know someone who took somebody else's kid in, you know, there's aunt such and such, who's not really anyone's aunt, but she's been taking care of everyone or, you know, so it looks different and it's counted different. And so I think we've not been taken as seriously in philanthropic spaces because the numbers don't say, Hey, that's a segment that you need to go after. And then also we don't have Um, you know, the same level of historic wealth, you know, there is a, a huge wealth gap in our community, even with us being, you know, the forerunners in Black women or, you know, and graduating from college and being entrepreneurs and all these other things. Um, So I think it's really important to consider, again, the why, like the differences. And so what it looks like um, and and even to, to help build that wealth and the capacity so that people like me can help close the wealth gap, not because I've got generational wealth to bank on, but because people have opened up. There have been some of the most profitable things for me have been, these same older white guys opening up their Rolodex for me and making introductions and things because we always prove ourselves when we get there. We, we, we kill the gang when we get there, but getting there um, and, and I, and I have that um conversation with clients a lot, like, you know, or Wells Fargo CEO was just in hot water for saying like they hadn't met their diversity goals because there wasn't enough minority talent. Well, they're all this nepotism we're pulling from the same pool. So if my pool is only white and I'm not engaging HBCUs or I'm not like Hire or, or promoting within black individuals or individuals of other minority groups, then sure, you're not going to realize that there's this whole talent, you know, pool there and available. So again, it's just, my work is so layered because there's a lot of educating to do which you have to do um, carefully because you don't, you know, I, I say that I'm, I'm always biased toward action, not guilt. So I don't want you to walk away from our conversations feeling guilty about your wealth or guilty about your white privilege or whatever, but I want you to know it exists. And so now what are we going to do about it? Um, and so I'm just blessed to, and it wasn't always this way. I started with some clients who um, I tell, you know, entrepreneurs all the time, like all clients aren't good clients and all money isn't good money. You know, I had to learn to say no to the folks that didn't, get it and weren't ready and refer them other places or just wish them their best because I thrive in a situation where I know I'm able to really operate in my gifts and kind of get into my sweet spot and do what I need to do without the constant resistance. If we're still fighting about whether or not Black Lives Matter and whether or not there's systematic racism, you're not the client for me. <laughs> you know, If you can acknowledge that exists, you may not be an expert on it, but if you can at least acknowledge it exists, now we can work, we can go somewhere. And, and there's grace and there's a learning process for all of us. But, um, but yeah, I had to say no to the people who, well, they're, they're not my client, you know, let go to a traditional wealth management place, get a, you know, don't advise fund and write your check somewhere. But if you really want to create equitable change, let's talk, but you know, you just have to know who's for you and who isn't. And that was, that took a lot of faith because it's easy as an entrepreneur. You want to, I mean, you don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> and so I Almost fell into the trap of taking clients because I was like, I I want this money, but realizing that being focused with the right population has just brought, I mean, gosh, like tremendous mental health and peace and satisfaction as well as thankfully a business that's doing well. So.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Jim. Around client fit, and it's just—I mean, you—you you can end up running around in circles, bending mm-hmm. over backwards. But if it's not the right client for you, if they don't see the value, it they're not. If y'all aren't on the same wavelength, you, it just doesn't work. Yep. Even with, it's almost like you know, we get that check, and you're like, oh gosh, you like.
1: I worked man, hard for this, this money. Yeah, it's real enough. hard for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. It's not worth it.
0: And I also like what you talked about, too, um, around philanthropy and communities that appear, according to reports, Mm -hmm. to not be philanthropic, um, but to then take it back and say, how do we how are we philanthropic in our lives? Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to talk to you about you work with with big money, as we can as we can hear. (laughs) But what at what point would you consider somebody ready to be a philanthropist or to exercise mm-hmm. philanthropy? Is there a certain financial number? Is mm-hmm. there a certain age? Is there a certain experience mm-hmm. level? What does that look like?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of, um, like foundations or wealth management groups would define between one and $2 million of liquid assets, uh, to be a high net worth donor. Um, but I don't think that you have to wait for that at, all there are so many cool organizations popping up that do almost like crowdsource giving or you can pick a place um my friend i was talking to her the other day her son is nine and from his allowance he gives a dollar a month to the boy scouts of america it's a dollar it's not really hitting their bottom line but he is so excited when he gets that you know donation that he gave to other little boys you know they made it so I think that it should be like, I mean, when we have our son, we're going to teach him from the beginning, like how to give, because I think it really is more so about a spirit of generosity and being open, because then even when you have the millions to give, you're not going to approach it like, you know, you're everything about the community. You, you don't have as many strings attached to your money. You're, you approach it with a curiosity and an openness. So there are all sorts of giving circles. Most cities have uh, a community foundation and a lot of community foundations have like African-American giving circles or you don't even have to stick within an ethnicity. You can just decide how you want to give. Now there are minimums for donor advised funds and things with certain foundations. And that's also one of the things I'm trying to to. Um, speak to in my work because I think some it's like a minimum of like 10 or 15 thousand dollars a year on the low side, and I think for some people it's really short sighted because um, you know the, the recent college grad maybe 10,000 a year is a huge stretcher, all they can give, but if you shun them from philanthropy now. When they strike you rich, they're not going to want to fool with you, (laughs) you know, so that's one way to give. But I think also um, there's an organization that I'm, I'm familiar with, Young Black and Giving Back they do things around like Giving Tuesday and other things where, you know, people are, I mean, look at how President Obama won the first time. It was literally from a bunch of like 5 and $10 donations. So I think pick a cause and give regularly to it. Um, you know, when I started out, I think I was doing like $10 a month to World Vision, giving some to my church, you know, doing some to like, you know, someone would ask. And I'm like, oh, that's a good cause, I'll do it. So there are ways to get more dedicated and focused in the area. Like I do an assessment with people about, how they want to give, like what kind of causes they're drawn to, what they care about, um, if they just want to write the checks or if they want to be really actively involved as volunteering. So there's ways to sort of learn your giving style. Um, but no, I don't think, I think you can start anywhere because, you know, as a former executive director uh, of a nonprofit, if you have a hundred people giving $25 a month, that's, That's not bad for a small nonprofit with unrestricted giving because, you know, with grant money, there's so many strings attached on how you use it. It's restricted. So unrestricted funds are always amazing to causes. Um, And then also, I mean, right now, shoot, in the middle of COVID, there's all sorts of needs that people have. So your philanthropy can look like knowing a friend that got laid off. So again, that's where you, how do you define it? Right? Like it's not tax deductible, but um, you know, I have a friend in New York that's been impacted because she's an entertainer and everything is shut down. And my husband and I felt led to send her some money. And she was like, this is exactly what I needed to pay a bill. You know, so you just don't know. So I, I think that yes, there's a very uh, intentional route to philanthropy with your financial management, your accountant, your whoever. that's a path once you get to bigger dollars. but I don't think that you should put barriers on yourself to begin living a generous lifestyle. and I think you'll see God increase, you know what you're able to give and your desire to give your capacity to give. And then you know they talk about with being on boards, even like talent, treasure, time. So if you don't have the money to give right now, you know are you a whiz at building a website there are so many nonprofits that have crappy social media presence right like donate a website like operate their social media account there there are so many things that we can other ways to give and have meaningful impact until you're able to give large dollars that honestly don't have to be this huge sacrifice of time or you know in the covid world don't have to put you in physical harm of interacting with others so there's a lot to explore there
0: yeah, thank you for freeing us up because when I hear people talk about giving, often it's, well, I have to be a certain, I have to be at a certain level Mm-mm. in order to do that. But I agree, I think it's more of a muscle where, you know, if you're taught or you or you learn or experience the importance of generosity, then I would assume that as you make more and more money mm-hmm. uh, and the checks get bigger and bigger you still might feel it but you're but you're used to it it's Not it's still a level of, of sacrifice for, uh, yes. right right yep. versus if you're constantly you've been trained to hold on to every mm-hmm. single dollar and then mm-hmm. the moment that somebody asks for a donation you're like what mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. no this is my money it's it's different mm-hmm. it's kind of living life with an open hand
1: And it is. I mean, I've met some of the cheapest, wealthiest folks. I'm like, you are a multimillionaire. Like, you're good. This is not going to hurt you. But people have a tendency to compare up, right? It's like, well, I'm worth, you know... I got 10,000 in the bank. Well, I'm worth a million. Well, I'm worth a hundred million, but there's always someone going to be worth more that you can point the finger at for them to do it. And I think we all can do what we can do within our sphere of influence until you can do more and then you can do more. But if we keep looking at what someone with more can do and don't take it upon ourselves to do it, then you know there's a lot of pointing going on and and no one really ever giving to the cause and making a dent in it, especially as people of color, where we need to be seen in these spaces, like I don't want to be seen as charity. There's definitely people that do, but I'm also can be a decision maker and a trendsetter with you, and help inform from a culturally competent space what my community needs and and where you know those things are. So I think we just have to really change our minds around a lot of it.
0: Yes, and I liked that even at the very beginning of our conversation, you were talking about how you noticed. So you you started noticing the difference between the I don't want to call them the haves and the have-nots, but Mm -hmm. like you're in, in one aspect, you're working with these high rollers. And then on the other aspect, you know, you're, you're working with people who have socioeconomic challenges Mm -hmm. and the duality of that, of like, how am I doing the same role and dealing with, and there's such a big divide. So um, I like that you paid attention to that and you said, what can I do? Like, what's, what's in my sphere of influence to do? Mm -hmm. And even those that are listening, you know, they they might feel that they're in some a similar situation mm-hmm. or maybe they feel like they don't know where to give or how to give back. Mm-hmm. But even educating people like you were talking about is really it's powerful for to let other people know, like, hey, let let me explain why, you know, people feel really passionate about this. Mm-hmm. And maybe this will give give some additional clarity. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I I have a little bit of Uh, it makes me a little upset when I feel like people look at people of color, people from other countries, Mm as charity cases, mm -hmm. I'm like, they could have next to nothing, but they're still not a charity. Like they are full human beings. Um, and if we can get out of this, out of this mindset of like, I'm going to save them and more of like a partnership
1: of like, let's
0: share in humanity and let, let me, you know do do what i can to positively impact according to what your needs are i think the world would be so different
1: Absolutely. if um, if
0: we didn't approach it with that perspective of a savior
1: mentality <laughs> yeah it would make a huge difference yeah
0: okay so we're going to transition to another totally unrelated topic. I was trying to think of like a smooth transition (laughs) to be like, just like we were talking, but I couldn't quite think of one. um, Except I could say, you mentioned that you had a husband earlier.
1: Yes, (laughs) I have one of those. (laughs) So
0: you have a husband. I do. You know, those those that have listened to most of uh, the episodes will know that somehow, if I know something about somebody's relationship, I'm going to bring it up because it is so beautiful. (laughs) But before we get to how you got a husband, Mm -hmm. talk to us. <laughs> About your single life, um, or you know your your pre husband life, because mm-hmm. you've had a really thriving career. You worked in NASCAR. You have um, you know multiple degrees. What was that journey like mm-hmm. for you to have success not only in your um, business but also in your in your personal life or what you mm-hmm. deemed to be success? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, there was definitely a a painful journey of failures (laughs) that led to the success. Um, So I got married to my college sweetheart and uh, we started dating. See, we dated my junior and senior year and then two years after graduation. And so I was 24 when I got married um, and it just was not a good situation. Um, Some of it I can blame on. Age, I guess, but a lot of it just came down to character. And, um, I really stayed longer than I should have out of, uh, what I talked to a lot of Christian women about of, of the guilt of, you know, the first thing somebody's going to tell you is that God hates divorce <laughs> And, or did you try hard enough? Did you pray hard enough? Did you take him back enough? To, did you, and um, I think that we have encouraged women to stay in really abusive situations where a person has intentionally hardened their heart to the Lord and to accountability I'm in the name of that. So I believe that God hates divorce because he's a God of covenant. Um, And so it's the actions that lead to the breaking of the covenant that he hates and that hurts him and that hurts the people involved. Um, but I think- That once you know you've done what you can do to fight and and work, it comes down to the free will. And I I remember laying um, literally like balled up in the floor in a fetal position crying my eyeballs out. And just saying like, God, where did I meet? Cause that's the other thing. People would guilt, like, well, what, what signs did you ignore? And did you weren't supposed to marry him in the first place? what did you do? And, you know, for some people, that's very true. I've had for divorced friends who said, I knew I shouldn't have married him or people who felt pressured to marry them because it's, like, it's better to marry than to burn. Well, we had sex. We have to get married. You know, you just hear so many things. And so people get married for a myriad of reasons, um, some right and some wrong. And either way, if you've done the work and have been faithful to a Attempting to, to keep it together, I think that some people absolutely have no grit and no stick to itiveness to try to work. The first fight, the first time is hard. It's like, oh, I'm out of here. I am not at all advocating for that. But I also think you hear people say almost like a badge of honor. We've been married for sixty years, and he, you know, twenty years he didn't. But the Lord, I felt like who God has called me to be. Was way too important to to wait twenty years for him to maybe get it together, um, because I was dying inside. Like my self esteem was, I went from having an amazing sense of self to, I mean, I was just messed up. I mean, he broke me all the way down, and I was also hurt and angry at God. Like, what did I miss? Like, I was a virgin when I got married. I did things, quote unquote, the the right way, and you know, people act like in obedience also, like there's not gonna be any hardship. Like it's gonna be this perfect magical all of that. And, and so that's a whole nother thing. But long story short, uh, the, the marriage ended and um, I was single another, gosh, six years. So we were I was 29. I was 29 by the time our divorce was final. And I remember thinking, okay, cool. Like, give me a year or two. I'm going to heal. I'm going to recover. I'm going to go to counseling. And then I'm going to swept off my feet again and like remarried. And this is going to be it. And so, year two and a half, I'm like, "Uh, <laughs> what's going on? um, you know, I was dating and stuff, but uh, no one who I knew it just wasn't it you know and and I actually did get into another uh relationship that was I think a rebound of pain. It was really great in a lot of ways and helped sort of make me feel like a woman again and you know, feel like, oh, I still had it. But there were also things where our values just would never have been the same. And I knew I couldn't go down that path again. Like once you've been married before, like fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. It was like, uh, no. And so as painful as it was to walk away, I just knew that I had to get into a place to really hear from the Lord about what's next for me. And, you know, through it all, my career was still thriving, which was the crazy part. Like how, you know, you talked about duality earlier, like there were aspects of my life I mean, I was killing the game. I was getting promoted. I was traveling. I was having fun. I was making more money. I've always, thank, thankfully, I've always had really, really strong, healthy friendships. And so, um, you know, I wasn't just sitting at home miserable or waiting on the Lord to send another man. I was living my fullest life, but there were moments I'm like, okay, one more award ceremony where my mom and dad are here, but awesome. I'm so glad they're here, but it would be lovely to have, you know, a permanent plus one as one of my friends calls it. Um, So I just started, you know, really making some intentional affirmations and doing some things in my life to have what I wanted. And so, yes, some was related to a relationship, but it was also around like, full healing and and just being in the right place at the right time. And um, believing that as I was doing what I was called to do, so was he and the Lord would allow our paths to join and then putting myself out there. So I had to tell people that I was on the market, like I'm looking, I'm ready, like to, you know, and uh, it's funny, my cousin actually set me up with another guy and um great guy like on paper fit all of the qualifications and i just there just wasn't this chemistry there for me and i'm like girl you're crazy he's like all the things you want but it didn't feel right and i think that's where i realized i had really reached a certain place of healing and maturity because although he fit on paper everything it just something i knew he wasn't for me and i wasn't for him and had i jumped on it and locked it down i would have missed my blessing is so would he, because it's so funny. We decided we were still friends, we remained friends, um, but we decided, you know, from a relationship standpoint, it just wasn't it. And uh, literally almost a month later, we both connected with who were both, were married. We're both married today to not each other, but to different people, but yeah. So I have a funny story about how I met my husband. I can tell you that later if you want, but the point of that story was, you know, just doing some of the intentional work on myself and remaining active and putting myself out there and just really, um, yes, yeah, speaking what I wanted to see and getting out of the scarcity mindset of being afraid. Like I felt like the more successful I got, the more, the older I got, the more accomplished the pool, especially for me. Like I, you know, I, I was open to dating other races, but I preferred a black man, especially as, as into social and racial justice. I am like, you gotta be a strong fella to <laughs> not be a black man and be okay with what I'm doing. Um, So yeah, I just knew that there were things I was flexible on the list with the things that like didn't necessarily matter in the end, but there were other stuff where I was like, I just can't, I can't bend. And uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: No, that's good. Thank you for sharing because there are a few things I can a hundred percent resonate with level of success and, Mm -hmm. and feeling that pressure of is the pool shrinking (laughs) and is, is, and and what is going to happen? I told you before we started recording, that I was recently ghosted after the guy found out what I did. And like, and so there's Mm -hmm. that part where um, my friends who are also, you know, really killing it in their careers, Mm -hmm. like almost feeling the pressure of shrinking back and, and saying like, well, playing down, playing down what we do, playing down our accomplishments because we want to make people feel more comfortable. But you know, what you're saying is, you know, owning the fullness of who you are yep. and being vocal about that, being open. But like you said, just saying, Hey, I'm open. Yeah. Like I'm open. I'm doing my healing. Um, and I liked what you said to you at the, the very beginning of your story, just bring us up as believers and as mm-hmm. Christians, there's so much language around what a relationship should be, what a marriage mm-hmm. should be. And I think at the heart Of it, you know, at the heart is supposed to be scripture of, you know, a covenant is a covenant is a covenant. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that we're all human. And sometimes we make mistakes because we have free will and we we deal with the consequences. Sometimes people change yeah. and and you have no control. There's just so yeah. many outside factors. So really freeing us up because I've walked this journey through through a couple with a couple of people already, mm-hmm. the journey of divorce of like the, the questions and, oh gosh, should I stay longer because maybe yeah. I should try a little harder yeah. or you know, what signs did I miss all of that. So I like that you were just open and you said, you know, according to, to your Christian list of things, you did it right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Quote unquote, right. And it, it ended up how it ended up. Um, But, you know, just allowing everybody to know, like the journey that you have is your journey and the freedom that you had to even release the guy that you were dating and saying like, as much as I want this to work, I really believe that there is something else. And Mm -hmm. so for you all, uh, you know, having that experience, feeling that release, and then to go on to meet your spouses, I think is such a cool story.
1: Yeah. And there's a fine line there because I have some friends who are ridiculous, right? Like they're like, they have a certain number for his credit score. He's got to be a certain height. He's got to be. So I'm not saying to, that's not why me and this other guy didn't work out. There were just, when I really looked at who he was called to be, who I was called to be, where we wanted to live, what we wanted to do, and just going with my gut, which a lot of times I think for believers, that is the Holy Spirit um, being our barometer. Um it wasn't right and so there's a difference in having standards and not settling for that and then also just being so rigid with our list that you miss your blessing altogether about who and you're just not even open to there's nobody that's gonna you know match some of these lists so i think you do have to have that balance um you know and be realistic and give people a chance but but don't adjust especially when you get to the point when you feel like you're dimming your light. So there's adjusting to, you know, reality and humanity but then there's also um not shying away from it all who God has called you to be and and how you operate in that. So like I knew I couldn't date a guy that wanted a stay-at-home wife, mom, you know, like woman that didn't have, you know, and nothing's wrong with those things. I just knew that wasn't me. So if that's what he was looking for, it, it wasn't going to work, you know, and he couldn't be intimidated because I travel a lot. So you can't be insecure that I'm on the road. Like I, I work with a lot of men. So just those kinds of things, like I wasn't going to have, so yeah, you just have to use wisdom and be, I would say, be real with yourself, be real with God and be real with your, you know, trusted circle of friends. Cause save you a lot of trouble.
0: (laughs) That's it. That's it. So now you do have to tell us the funny story about how you met your husband. Yes.
1: So, um, I grew up in the DC area, as you said earlier in my bio and the church where I grew up has a huge Christmas play every year. And, um, so, you know, I would always go home for the play and see folks at the time I was living outside of Philadelphia. Um, and so it was just a couple hours drive home and I almost didn't go. Cause it had kind of been like an icy weird rain that day. And I was like, yeah, see y'all next year. But my friend, he was like, no, come on Kia. Like, let's all catch up. So I did. And this particular year, Kirk Franklin was a part of the play. And, you know, I had met him a few times through industry stuff. You know, like I said, I always kind of had my side hustle that still kind of had me connected to the world of entertainment and all that, but we didn't know each other well at all. Um, and so I was actually talking to um, my friends and Marvin like a bunch of the other ones who were in the play that year. So We were talking about relationships. And so Kirk Franklin started saying, um, you know, you seem like a good woman. You got a lot going for yourself. Like, well, what's going on? And I'm like, well, I'm dating, you know, but it's hard in these streets when you have standards and, you know, it's like, so, yeah, you know, we kind of kept talking about all of that and you know, sharing the woes as black women. <laughs> and uh, randomly he was like, oh, well, you know, you you were probably like my friend Keith. And I'm like, oh, okay. He ain't say anything else about Keith. I didn't ask anything else about Keith. I forgot all about it. So hours later, we're all out to dinner. And um, I was talking to him about nothing that had to do with the relationships at all. And he pulls out his phone. So I'm like, oh, this must be good. He's about to take notes. Like I'm thinking, (laughs) I was actually talking to him about philanthropy. (laughs) So he probably wanted to shut me up. Like, let me talk about something else with this girl. Um, But he pulled out his phone and FaceTimed Keith and he puts his phone in my face. No warning, mind you, we're at dinner. And he says, she's cute. She's safe. She's smart. What do you think? And I'm like, Hey, how, how you doing there, buddy? <laughs> you know, and my friends oh my gosh. Are all laughing. Like, it's loud. We're in the restaurant. I'm embarrassed. And like, do I have kale on my teeth? You know, or so um, we chatted maybe, I don't know, 15 seconds, just real random. And so Kirk was like, I mean, can I give me your number? You know, so I'm like, yeah, you know. So the next day, Keith texted me. He was like, so how did that happen? I'm like, because your friend is crazy. And so we talked that night for probably like an hour or so. Um, and what's interesting is even after our first conversation, I felt, uh, this is how the enemy, was. I felt condemnation. I was like, he would have been perfect for me prior to my divorce. Mm. I was like, Why was that my first thought? Because he just was like all of these wonderful, like pure, innocent things that I felt like just even from my first time. And I felt... Tainted by that, tainted by like dating experiences in the, in the middle. Um, And looking back, I realized that was the enemy doing what he does best, trying to accuse me and bring my past to my face, even though I had done the work to repent, to heal, to all of these things. Um, But anyway, we kept talking and long story short, we were engaged within seven months. Uh, So we met in December, we were engaged in July Engaged two months and then married by September. So within nine months of meeting each other, we were married. Wow. <laughs> and you can't pay me to believe that that would ever be the case. Because again, I told you, like I dated this other guy for four years before we even got married and went through a six year marriage. So 10 years of my life with someone that it just didn't work and was all wrong. So in my mind, I'm like, we're going to date for two years and then we're going to do premarital counseling before we're engaged. Cause if it doesn't work out, I don't want the shame of calling off the wedding. Like I had all these rules in my head and they all went out of the window, but I will say, even though the time was fast, there was still just so much honesty and, and communication. Um, and even accountability, like my friends that I trusted and my family who I trusted. Now you can't have everybody in your business, but there were trusted ones who like it it checked all the boxes for them also. Like they didn't have any red flags because I'm like, am I missing something? Like, is this too good to be true? And yeah, and here we are, you know, three years later and expecting our first baby and all that good stuff. So
0: that is yeah. so beautiful so <laughs> so beautiful i mean how many people can say that they met their husband on facetime for 15 <laughs> seconds like that must have been a fire 15 second conversation you can probably no it was
1: real tits. regular and so that's the funny part it was it was regular it was like we were both embarrassed like kirk what are you doing but kirk with his persistent self you know it was like keith did you call that girl yet and he you know we talked the next day um But yeah, but even on his end, he was on his own dating journey and getting frustrated. Like, Lord, I know that, you know, there's more women to men looking and all, like the numbers are right, but where is the right one? He said, you know, I don't know, something just felt different for him too after our first conversation. He's very introverted while I'm the extrovert. So it was even a lot for him to, reach out. Um, but he did. And so it's funny, Kirk was like, Y'all, y'all owe me, you know, you gotta name your firstborn after we're all K's. But that's, so it's funny, Kirk and Tammy are actually his godparents. But uh <laughs> yeah, so a cool full circle moment there. But yeah. Uh
0: yes. Thank you for sharing that. And also thank you for sharing how you really were operating from your your perspective, your dating perspective post-divorce was very much one of, I'm going to try to protect myself mm-hmm. from past pain. So I'm going to set up all of these, all of these. I mean, some people would say that they were good boundaries, mm-hmm. but from the, the heart that they were coming from, it was like a, a hurt place. Like I have to do these things. Um, but I love that you shared, you know, you had people involved in it. Mm-hmm. And so they were letting you know if they saw anything crazy mm-hmm. happening but then just trusting that this is a totally different person and that you don't have to have the same experience that you had. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for, you know, sharing your journey of what it looks like to have a full life as a single person mm-hmm. and um, experiencing the dating scene and even into into marriage. So thank you for sharing that. I know majority of the people that listen are women mm-hmm. and, you know, we we like to hear stories of hope and, yeah, and stories I understand, of, sisters. of Keep on all on, all that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. You are as I mentioned before, just a wealth of knowledge and Mm, such a joy and a light. And I would love for people to connect with you. So how can they, how can they connect with you?
1: Um, Instagram is probably one of the easiest ways. Um, So on Instagram, it's Kia E. Williams. So K-I-A and then my middle initial E and then Williams. Um, And then from a business perspective, you know, if they are interested in philanthropy or not don't really work with um, if you're kind of just starting your nonprofit or wondering I don't do nonprofit management coaching in that way it's more so figuring out i have a brand i want to know what to do with it to use it for good or i want to start giving i'm not sure where to do it or i want to understand racial equity in those spaces more so more so around that but you can check out my website um it's Business. So relevant dot business, um, and it'll contact me that way. But you can take a look at like what I do and see if it's a good fit. And I would love to talk. I have a couple new products rolling out next year to help people really do an assessment on sort of the racial equity uh, scorecard, if you will, how their organization is doing uh, from an equitable perspective. And, that, and that's not only for white folks, that's for all of us. Cause we can all, you know, figure out if we're doing equity at its best um, and then some just opportunities to convene uh, people uh, about these conversations. And again, like I said, be having a bias toward action. What do we do now that we understand how to do better and um, really trying to increase that social capital and that social network as well. So stay tuned for some cool things. I'll start, my my social media has sort of been like a mashup of personal stuff and I don't do as good of a job when people like, what are you doing again? So <laughs> between the, you know, Instagram and my website you can kind of figure it out or we can certainly talk more, but yeah.
0: Yes. Thank you. I will definitely include all of those direct links in the show notes so people will be able to click and go right to your site or right to cool. your Instagram page. I'm, her Instagram page is beautiful. I just oh. am tossing that out there. It's a good follow. And yes, if you are the right fit, you know, we talked about client fit earlier, you know, go ahead and reach <laughs> out Yes. Well, thank you so much, Kia, you, and okay. uh, it was an honor to have you here on the thank Dream you Builder so Feed much.
1: podcast. So good to be here.
0: All right. Thanks. Bye. Well, that's another one. Another incredible episode for the books. Thank you so much for joining. If this was impactful in any way to you and for you in your business, in your life, in your faith go ahead and share, take a screenshot, let me know that you're listening to this, share it on your stories, share it on your timeline, just share it in your group chats with all of your friends. Excited to have you here. Feel free to follow me on social. I respond to my messages. So go ahead, follow on social. You can just search Casey Sharperson. I am literally the only one in the world. So I'm very easy to find. Additionally, if you need some strategy, inspiration, a game plan as it relates to starting or growing your business, your dream, your empire, head on over to caseysharperson.com. I have a free audio gift for you there. So go ahead and access that. Of course, it's in the show notes. Excited to see you on the next episode. Thanks so much. Have a great day.